Verse 5, read along with me, and it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he said, If I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for what you're going to do here in this time. I thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this church service and for the blessing of your presence here. Lord, please have your way. And Lord, let today be one of those days, Lord, where we are just in awe of you. Let your word truly grab a hold and speak fluent us. Speak to every one of us individually in a way that we could personally say, the Lord spoke to me today. But Lord, also then speak to us as a body that we as a church could be that much more ready for what you have for us. So Lord, now have your way. Draw us close. Let this time be perfect time spent. I pray you immerse me in your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would through me do that which I cannot humanly do. So speak to us now. Have your way, we pray. Glorify yourself in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say it. So search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now this is where we're at in scripture. We're roughly a year, nearly a year into the time before, uh, after we've left the land of Egypt. So it's roughly about the 1400s BC, roughly 400 years before David, roughly 1400 years before Jesus will set foot as we know him. During this particular time, it's been a sort of rough go at it. We have left Egypt after God has systematically disqualified everything that is known as God in Egypt. And I want to remind you that the Israelis that lived there had lived there for 430 years, which means that all they had known is Egypt. All the gods they had known were the Egyptian gods and the stories they had heard from their forefathers. All of the food they had known, all of the practices they had known, they were Egyptian. As a matter of fact, the only person of this mass that had ever been to Mount Sinai before this point was Moses. Because it was at that place where God had called him, where Moses had that experience with the burning bush. It was there at Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses and said, now I'm calling you to deliver these people. I'm going to come down, I'm going to be with your mouth, I'll give you favor with the people, and you'll come out with great spoils. Now, please hear me. Since that point now, Israel has left, but not only has Israel left, a good portion of Egypt has left with them. Because after all, since all of the gods that you've worshipped have been taken down, the only God left standing is the real one, the living God. And he's the one that's taking his people out. Why wouldn't you want to go with? Israel has entered into there. A poor has left out of there now quite wealthy. Unfortunately, they've come wealthy with a lot of other bits of baggage, much like us as well. And remember, the whole point of this is somewhere between Exodus 12 and Joshua 12 is this period of time where we go from leaving the land of bondage and the hand of slavery and entering into the place God has ordained for us. Now that's an awful long time in between. It's going to be 40 years. And there's a lot that's going to take place in those 40 years. A lot of weaknesses are going to be exposed. A lot of vagrancies within our own heart are going to be shed light on. I mean, it's going to be really a difficult time. And, and please understand, in this, and, and we've said it before, God gets, you know, it took, if you will, it, it, it took 10 plagues to, for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it'll take 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. But even then they won't. 
I mean, please understand, it isn't like God had eradicated Israel, uh, Egypt from Israel and everything was good. Because even when we got into the promised land, it wouldn't take long before we would gather ourselves some kings. And then as we gather ourselves some kings and the kingdom divides, we'll make golden calves up in the, in the north. So it isn't like this whole thing is completely out of our system. Not until we stand before the living God will Egypt really be out of our system for good. But the problem is, for so many of us, Christianity is just getting out of Egypt and not going to where he's called us to. And that is sheer robbery. Because if all you think there is is going to heaven and not going to hell, then why doesn't he just kill you the moment you say yes and get it over with? Why wait? But somewhere on earth, God's got this place at least that's so much more than just getting you out of the bondage, getting you out of that misery and that torment. But there's another place, a place, by the way, of great fruitfulness. And that's the one thing he keeps telling them about the place they're going. It's going to be a land of milk and honey, a place of great fruitfulness. And understand, somewhere between here and here is this death march of 40 years where that old man, that old generation, dies. Now, I hope it isn't going to be 40 for me, and I hope it's not going to be 40 for you. But please hear me. Somewhere after saying yes to Jesus Christ, and I pray you have, if you haven't, you'll have that opportunity today. Jesus died for your sins, according to Scripture, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to Scripture, and then was seen by a lot of people. And he gives you the choice to say yes to his payment for your sin. If you've said yes... Well, then your sins have been forgiven, but there's an old person that still needs to be separated from the new creation God's made you. And we've got this baby, infant, new creation and this adult or maturing sinner. And God takes the liberty then of marching us in such a way that that old person dies so that the new person could be, well, the new person could be fruitful. And that's what God has intended for every one of us. In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, God starts to tell us seven parables. And in the first parable, he tells us a sower goes to sow some seed. And as the sower goes to sow some seed, the seed isn't, it, by the way, is a constant. It doesn't change. The soil types are the variable. He throws seed in four different types of soil. I mean, he throws seed on the wayside. He throws seed among short or very thin, rocky soil. And terrace farming is very common in Israel, so it's just very shallow soil. He throws it upon that where there are much weeds, and then he throws it in a good soil. And for that, of those, three of them sprout up. So that can't be the difference. Though in the first one, the seed lands, the birds eat it, and it's gone. So it really doesn't do much. But in the other three, there is some form of reaction. And they all grow some form of roots. They all sprout out a bit. So you can't say that that's the difference. And when we see that, we start thinking, well, isn't it wonderful? We go out, we share the gospel with 100 people, 75 of them respond. Wouldn't it be great if we had that kind of thing? We'd be writing books on evangelism. Could you imagine? But the problem is, of those 75 that respond, and that's just taking the four soil types and splitting them into quarters. Of those four soil types, the second one, by the way, if you remember, it's very shallow. It's a very shallow response. And because it's a very shallow response, the moment that persecution comes because of the word, it frizzles and dies. And you watch this. Someone that's quick to jump into some form of great emotional experience. They've had some form of holy hallelujah, and I don't want to in any way berate that. Those things are fantastic, but I tell you, here's what happens. You have this emotional experience, and this is what I've learned about emotions. They make a great ignition, but they make a terrible steering wheel. And so what happens, the car gets started, but it doesn't go anywhere. And so what happens is this response is like, yeah, that's awesome. And they go, and they shoot up really quick. And then someone goes, do you really believe that book? And they're like, I think so. What's in it? And then they start to tell them, and they're like, oh, I'm not really sure I could. And then they frizzle out. Then there's that third soil type. And in the third soil type, oh, it actually is going to grow roots. But the problem is there are other things that are rooted deeper. There are those things that are the cares and the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of all. In other words, those things that make you look responsible because the moment you start getting really full on for Jesus, those that love you are going to flip out. Have you learned that yet? And the best part is, is that they mean so well that they are driven by that kindness to sit down and to tell you what in the world is the matter with you. And they'll say something like, well, no, I, know, I love you, and I say this because I care. But you're turning into like a holy roller. You know? You're turning into like a lunatic. 
I mean, you're like overboard. You know, and it's like, it's like, you know, whatever happened to you when you were like just doing drugs and, and we were concerned about you getting pregnant, that was okay. This whole like, you know, full on for Jesus thing, now that's a little crazy. We don't know how to deal with that. Running from the law, heaven warrants out for your arrest. Okay, we know how to deal with that. You might have a disease. We know how to deal with that. People want to come in and kill you. We, can, we know how to deal with that. This whole I love Jesus thing, I have no idea how to deal with that. Could you just be wicked like you were before? Because at least that's normal. And what happens is there are these weeds that grow up and, it says, and it's a suffocation. And you watch people that were vibrant and they just get, they just get choked like the end of a cello. And it's just horrible. And you watch that. But the difference isn't the sprouting up. But what's the last soil type? It sprouts up and it says, and it produces fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Please hear me. The difference between here and here, between here and here, is fruitfulness. And by the time we get to John 15, it becomes very evident. He says, look it, you've got to cling to me if you're going to have fruit. But I've come that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. That you wouldn't just do cool little things and it would create cool little moments and then it would dissipate into nothingness. In other words, like you could kick up dust all day, but I'm actually going to have you move some mountains. Now, please hear me. Somewhere in between here and here, the old man has to die because the old man already bore fruit, but the fruit was the fruit of death. Here, the new man bears fruit of eternal life. I mean, not just you, but other people get affected by your love for God. What a radical thought that is. And here's the crazy part. Some of you will go from here to here to here. Because you came here and you got saved, and as you got saved, you just wanted everything of Jesus, and it was just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you ran over here, and you started telling people about Jesus, and they started asking you questions. And like the man in John 9 and 10 that was born blind, he's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. That I do know. And they're like, who is Cain's wife? And he's like, why? Are you interested in her? She's married. Who cares? I was blind, now I can see. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was in bondage, and now I'm free. Who cares about the rest? What about the Inquisition? I wasn't around. What about the Pope? He doesn't call me. I don't know. And you stop trying to answer all the questions. And you stop thinking that, you know, at that point, you didn't care whether people thought you were dumb or not. You were set free. What difference does it make? I'd rather be dumb and free than smart and in bondage. Later on, you'll learn it was the most brilliant thing ever. But somewhere in this, we better learn who this God is, because if we don't know who this God is, we really won't go from here to here and stay here. And here it is. Now, I want to put things into context. Moses has just gone down the mountain after a 40-day romantic getaway with the living God. During that time, God laid that, God's laid out some beautiful, beautiful things. And Moses is going to come down and hand them to the people. But God says, and we don't read, God said, come on up for 40 days. He just said, come on up. So Moses doesn't know when this thing's over. It isn't like, you know, some kind of football match where you watch the clock ticking. They're just hanging out, and all of a sudden, God goes, get up and go. And he's like, oh, why? Why? This is great. And he's like, because the people down there, they've gone out whoring. They've really polluted themselves, and you better get down there. So Moses runs down there. If you remember, and there they are, are dancing naked around a golden calf, and he has to deal with all of that. Moses breaks the law down at the foot of the, of the mountain. And by the way, fellowship, what else is at the foot of the mountain other than that broken law? The altar. The altar. The tabernacle is to be built, but the altar is going to be there at the bottom, not here already built. Please don't miss this. That's because the law is going to be broken there. And it's so that man doesn't have to go up to God. God's going to come down to him. Now, now with all of that, this is the situation Moses goes back up the mountain for. The people had gone whoring after other gods. They had made a fool of themselves. And he's going to go up there. And God's like, why don't I just kill him and start over? And Moses is like, no, 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 no. I know you better than this. And I know your reputation better than this. And with that, God says, all right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to, Moses says, you know, look, at, I'm concerned about what the people will think. And here's a guy that's 80 years old, and if he were proud, imagine if God were to say, I'm going to wipe out and I'll start a whole new tribe, the tribe of Juan. Juan, would you say? 
cool. I'm kind of tired of them already anyways. But you go, no, 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 no. These, these, I know you love these people. I know you love these people. Even if the rest of the world should think you shouldn't. Can you say that as you walk through Camden? As you walk through Soho? As you walk through Covent Garden? As you walk through Hackney? As you walk through Brixton? Can you say, ah, you know, regardless of what other people think, I know you love these people. Because I do. And so God says, all right. You're right. Perfect. Well done, Moses. And then Moses throws this zinger. Show me your glory. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty cheeky under the circumstances. A moment ago, God's like, let's wipe out everybody. And now Moses says, show me your glory. The mountain is trembled. Lightning is flashed from there. The, the cloud is descended. The whole thing is erupted and lit like fire. And he wants to know his glory. And I think, haven't you seen it yet? Of all of these magnificent things that are taking place on the top of the mountain where you are, Moses knows there's more. Please hear me. Please hear me. And I'm going to say this, and I don't want to ever split people on this, but this is when I have to in this. If you were ever raised in a Pentecostal background, you've been there. And that is you've seen the fire, you've felt the fire, you've felt the wind, the whatever, the fresh wind and the whole thing. And somewhere down the line, you know there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this experience. There's got to be more than the ground shaking and me barking or screaming or whatever and us slapping each other and us and doing laps or whatever it is that we want to do. There's got to be more than that. And he goes, okay, God, who are you really? Did you ever get there? I've been there. Because I know there's got to be more to this than this. And God says, well, I know how people evaluate glory. I mean, you know what? You, you do it by looking at faces. You do it by getting reputations. But you also do it by our names. And he goes, you know what, Moses? Look, at, you can't see my face and live. Not yet. Because when you see my face, you're going to die. And I don't have a new person to give you yet. That'll happen after the cross. Then you can see my face all you want because I'll kill the old guy and give you a new one. I like that. But beyond that, please hear me. He goes, if you really want to see my glory, and this is where we were last week, right? He says, I want you to come alone because this is something we need to do, you and me. But not only that, I really want you to come with a clean slate. I want you to deal with the broken law. I want you to take that broken law and I want you to present yourself to me as a lawbreaker. And I want you to come with a clean slate. And as you come with a clean slate, let's talk. I am going to pass by, cover your face, and declare my name. And what you'll see is my back. And you think, that's weird. God wants to show me his back. And I think it's not weird at all. It'd be God saying, memorize that back. Because you're going to be following me for a while till we get to that cross. Memorize that. So who are you? I'll tell you who I am. It's all in my name. Everything. Now, fascinating, the difference between the glory of God and anyone else, it's actually opposite. If you think of the things that would make you glorious, more than likely they would be things that would focus entirely only on you. Intellectual qualities, talents, your social skills. Whatever those things are, your looks, your strengths, but everything that God does to identify himself involves relationship. Never forget that. God doesn't say, here, mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, the things we could easily ascribe to him and should. But if you really want to know who he is and not what he is, it all involves relationship. And if I'm going to call myself a Christian, and you're going to call yourself a Christian, and we're going to call ourselves a Christian church, it has to revolve around relationships. Because if this is about competition, about who is the whatever the best, or who is the whatever, then we are robbing ourselves of what it really looks like to identify with the living God who says, this is what I'm like here. Thirteen things he's going to say here. And we'll develop those. But please follow me with me now as we look at them. And my prayer in all of this is, is, is normally when I look at these, I always do a so what. I don't know if you do this, you know, where you're kind of like, well, so what? What's, what, what? How important is this information? Obviously, it's fundamental. 
But also in the, the aspect of it, sometimes I'll negate it and go, but do, does my lifestyle really preach the opposite than this? Well, here it is. The first of them. Verse 5 again. Now the Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there. Moses has climbed the mountain. He's there with his blank tablets, waiting for the Lord, and he's come alone. And it says, and the Lord descended in a cloud, in the cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The first thing he identifies himself as here is the Lord. 5,980 times in Scripture he's going to call himself the Lord. 5,980 times. Now understand what it means. In its simplest sense, he's the boss. There's no arguing, he's the boss. By the time you get to the book of Leviticus, if you've ever been a parent, you'll understand how the book of Leviticus goes. God says, do this or don't do this. I'm the Lord. Don't do this. I'm the Lord. When you touch a dead body, wash yourself. I'm the Lord. Don't eat bats. I'm the Lord. Don't eat conies or hoopos or, you know, these, you know, don't eat like rats. I'm the Lord. And I know why this is. If you've ever been a parent, because if you have children, sooner or later, your children are full of why. Right? We'll ask why on things we don't even want just to question. God says, don't eat bat. How many of you in here have ever salivated at the thought of a good roasted bat? Okay, I'm going with none of you. But we still might ask, why? Yeah, Juan maybe, but that's another story. I was once in once in Russia. I'm pretty sure when I ordered chicken, I got bat, but or the chicken died of malnutrition. But anyway, but please hear me in this. This, I mean, of all the things, and you know, if you've ever heard, you know, you always remember the first and the last. Why this? You know what's interesting is 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 how much we shirk past this for the other. We know, and think about it, when we say, especially in America, deep south, the best in this. What does it take to be saved? You have to ask Jesus into your heart as your Savior. You have to say it like that too. Bless your heart. You have to ask Him into your heart as your Savior. Well, it doesn't say that. And I think if Jesus were to sit here and to talk to us today, and again, don't just believe me. Search the scripture. He would be telling us, stop playing the Savior game with me. And Romans 10, 9, and 10, many of us are familiar with it. It says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, or confess with the mouth of the Lord Jesus, it all depends on your version, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It always seems like we go almost there, but not there. Here's the almost. It's the cross. And the Savior. Well, that's good, but that's not it. It never says anywhere, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Savior. Well, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Because we do read that he is the Savior of all men. I mean, there's nobody, there's no mediator between man and God but the man Christ Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But if you think that you're cool just because Jesus is your Savior, but you're not willing to make him Lord, you better think again. Because Jesus demands to be Lord. And we must confess him as Lord. It says it's with your mouth that you confess unto salvation. It's your heart that you to believe the righteousness. Please hear me in this. Because we could play this game. Because all Savior is, if you think about it, all Savior is, is thanks for getting me out of hell. But he didn't die for you to get you out of hell. He died for you to be with you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins because you and your sinful state could not spend eternity with him in that, nor this moment or any other. He rose again to be the Lord, the resurrected Lord. Look, at it isn't just that Jesus died for you, but he died for you and rose again. The gospel as listed in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus died for your sins and mine according to Scripture. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to Scripture, and then he was seen by a lot of people. That's the scripture and the, that's the gospel in the simplest sense. And if what we simply say is, and I'm just trying to help us be clear on this, if what we simply say is, Jesus died for you and he wants to be your savior, I don't know, I mean, to me, it astounds me that any person would say no to that. If you were a Buddhist, but you thought there was 1% chance Jesus could be right, why not hedge your bet? Why not try just in case? 
I mean, sitting with a man that was an ardent atheist the other day and sitting and talking with him, and he's like, you know, oh, no, 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 I'm absolutely, and you're just dumb because you believe. And I'm like, well, so we are both absolutely convinced in our positions, and clearly only one of us can be right. The real issue is which one of us can afford to be. And, and, and the whole point of it is, is that if I were wrong, boohoo, and it's like, well, we all are buried, but I know better. Jesus is not only risen, he lives inside of me and he's transformed me in a way that is undeniable. But my question to you today is, is Jesus your Lord? Now please hear me. If he isn't, the opposite of that is, he's my servant. And you can go to churches where the whole thing is Jesus is the great, the great cosmic Bible bellhop. It's like, ding, ding, Jesus, what I'd really like today is a side order of forgiveness, a little bit of extra mercy. And this is my plan for the day. I've already listed it out so you can look at it. Could you bless these plans for my day today? And as if Jesus were to go, well, yes, sir, thank you so much. What a pleasure to serve you today. And I think, well, you know, and what happens is I've been to churches where people say, you just have to learn how to forgive God. Have you ever heard that? Forgive him of what? Well, because he didn't do everything you told him to. Well, I'd love to see that one play. I'm sure sooner or later God's going to roll film on that one somewhere. And I, I, but if I'm going to watch it, I want to watch it from a distance. And here's the whole point. is This God is the God who holds the entire universe in the expanse of his hand. All of this sees in the hollow of this hand. And said two words, and the and light was. He said five words, and the universe came into existence. And that's the particular guy that you're going to think is going to just sit down and do whatever you tell him to? <clears throat> you really think you know what's best for your life? I don't. He does. No one knows me better. He actually has cataloged every atom in my body. Every hair on my head. Now for some of you, that's more work than me. But just the same, he knows them all. All 17 of them. He's given them all names. Now, now hear me. If this is the first of it, we can't get much beyond it. We'll never get from here to here if we don't let him be Lord. Because we'll be too busy telling Him what to do than listening. And prayer is not laying out your list before God. The word prosukamai literally means to set yourself before God's goodwill. It is to cast yourself to say, what do you have for my life? If Jesus demonstrated at the, at the cross and in the garden what it really meant, it's we say, not my will, but yours be done. When His disciples said, teach us how to pray, or teach us to pray, remember right in the middle of that, your will be done on earth as it is on heaven. And if I can't make Jesus Lord, then I should start getting back to why in the world I've entered this in the first place. And you go, well, that's a little rougher. There are a lot less people who will say yes to that, but at least you'll know who's in your camp. Second of them, the Lord God. Used 538 times. Why the Lord God? He already said the Lord. Is he being redundant? Redundant, saying the same thing? I find this interesting. The difference between simply the Lord, which is his position, and the Lord God is his power. See, I won't take a show of hands just in case you may have worked for somebody else in the church. But without a show of hands, how many of you, just think about it, have worked for a boss, you were absolutely convinced you knew a whole lot more than they did. You could have done their job better. You don't have to show hands. Don't show hands. Just you kind of know. Or a boss that meant well but didn't have the wherewithal to actually get the job done. You know, they have great plans, but in the end of it all, they were just blessed nincompoops. The Lord is your boss. The Lord God tells us that not only is he the one who is the boss, but he's the one to whom all power, all wisdom, all light and life are inscribed. You see, it's one thing for you to surrender yourself to the hands of one who is stronger than you. But it's another thing to, to surrender yourself completely to the one who is infinite in wisdom, infinite in power. God doesn't just have the very best intentions for you. God actually has the power to make it happen. So when we start telling God, God, I, do you need my help? then we're not showing that he's the Lord God in our life. Does that make sense? Lord, I know this is your plan, but it isn't happening the way that makes sense to me. So 
I think I better help you. Now, we may not say that, but we do it. Have you ever informed God in your prayers? You're like, Lord God, in case you've forgotten, tomorrow's the deadline. Lord, this needs to happen, and can I just say, now? Lord, if this doesn't happen now, you know what's going to happen. You're smart. Like, we have to fill God in on the information as if God's handling other things, and then all of a sudden, it's like Gabriel comes and goes, and throws a little, like, sticky note down. Oh, oh, God. Sorry, sorry. D, sorry. I was, I was planning this. I didn't realize it was today. <laughs> okay. Really, is that the case? You know what's interesting is that the more I try to help God, the more I get in his way. Have you known that? And here's the funny thing. God's still going to get his work done. The only difference is he's going to have to step on me to get there sometimes. And I look at all of those different things and situations in life where in Scripture where Abraham and Sarah decide they want to help out God and how great that worked out. Or Isaac wants to help out God and we see how that works out. And you kind of get the idea that if we just read Scripture, we'd learn, get out of his way and stop trying to help him out. Now, the hardest part about this, beloved, in a thinking society, in a critically thinking society, is that we have to understand it to do it. And that is so contrary to the God we serve. See, our God is full of these beautiful paradoxes, these things that are so opposite of each other, they couldn't possibly be reconciled intellectually, but God does anyways because he's bigger. And you say, well, God, here's what has to happen, and it has to happen by this day, and God says, no, it doesn't. You go, but if it doesn't, if this doesn't happen on this day, this is the result, and God says, no, it won't. And you say, how possibly could that be? And you go, because I'm bigger. And we make God so much smaller to try to dummy him down into something we can fully understand. So how can God be fully sovereign and man have free will? God never told me that I had to understand how those two things reconcile. He just told me I had to believe it. I do, though. So I could sit with either side and say, oh, we're totally about free will. And I'm like, me too. And they'll be like, we're totally about God being sovereign. And I'm like, me too. And they're like, but I thought you were in their camp. I'm in every camp because the bottom line is the Scripture says both. The moment you say, I'm in the anti-that, well, I'm not in your camp anymore. God's so smart he can be totally in control. And he can still make you responsible for your choices. And the beautiful part about it is, I don't have to figure that out because I'm not running the universe. Praise God. And so the Lord says, here's my plan for your life. And you're like, that sounds awesome. And God, it's, like, it's like God telling you, my plan is to get you to China. And you go, awesome. And he says, no, let's go west. And you go, excuse me, west is the opposite direction. And we say that, of course, because that doesn't make sense to us, right? Because it's illogical and we're informing God. And God's like, yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of that. And he never breaks his sweat because he knows we're already going to ask him and challenge him on these things. And all of it, you ever have things where you know God's put something in your life, but something looks like a radical step away from it? And then all of a sudden, after all of that, you go, this, this just makes no sense whatsoever. And God goes, I know. Now you have to lean on me and not on your own understanding, huh? And you're like, I don't like that. And God goes, that's real faith. So if God were here, and I know he is, can I just say to your own heart and to mine, he's saying, can I reintroduce myself as your Lord and the Lord God? And we go from his, um, his position and his power now to his personality. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering are the next three. Interesting. The word merciful, and we're going to get a few of these words, by the way. Uh, the word here is the word rachum. Can you say rachum? Rahum, by the way, is not the most common word for mercy. The most common word for mercy is chesed. Like, for instance, bet chesed, when you think Bethesda, the house of mercy, bet meaning house, bet chesed, the house of mercy. Chesed is the most common word for mercy. Rahum, by the way, is an interesting word, and it's the word that I can't use because my wife's not in the room, but it's the word that means to fondle or to be tender. I really love this word. Think about it. This is the first personality trait God gives us. I mean, he's looking, I'm Lord. I'm the Lord God, and I'm tender. I think that, is, that already starts to, my brain starts to fall out of my ears. I don't know about you. 
Because someone who is Lord, okay, I kind of get that, but someone who is Lord, God, who can speak and splinter the cedars of Lebanon, who can speak and the entire universe erupts into some form of, some form of cosmic blast, but quiets himself into a still small voice so my brain doesn't explode in my ears. And then somehow in all that can be tender. My favorite verse, or one of my favorite verses in scripture, uh, the one, one of the 45 that I would call my life verse is Zephaniah 3.17. And in it, right in the middle of it, is this beautiful statement. Because he says, the Lord, the Lord your God, in your midst, mighty to save. It says, he will delight in you, quiet you with his love, and then rejoice over you with singing. What a God is that? That would, I mean, to hear God sing, what kind of song would he sing if you could hear the song he sings over you? As a songwriter, I know what it's like to sing because I'm in love. I know what it's like to hear that kind of song. But in between delighting and rejoicing is this statement. He'll quiet you with his love. He said, Dad, I know this. It's those days when something gets a little bit scary. Your daughters are a little younger than they are now to not embarrass them. It's a bad dream. It's a thunderstorm. It's a whatever. It's an earthquake. It's something that's happened that's really freaked them out. And with all due respect, they don't run to mom. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, they run to dad. And, it's, and I do know this. And it's like, this isn't everyone, but I've known at least in some relationships, it seemed fairly common, that often a lady will quiet and try to calm with words. And a man will try to calm with a look and a touch. At least that's how it works in our house. So you have a mom going, be calm, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm, calm down. Well, good luck with that. Um, and, I, and that's just, you know, not me. On the other hand, I'm just like, come here. We won't say anything. I'm just going to hold you so you know that everything's okay. And that's the idea when it says in Zephaniah 3.17, he'll quiet you with his love. I mean, not just make you feel good about yourself with his love. Make you feel important because of this love. You ever have times when the whole world just seems like it's just going crazy and everything seems like it's on top of you and it's spinning and all the rooms, all the walls in the room are getting closer and the ceiling is dropping and little pins are coming out like something from an Indiana Jones thing or whatever. And you're just kind of feeling like everything's getting smaller and you're just like, I, just, I, need, I need some form of solace at this moment. And then you go, God, please. And it's just like he grabs you and just holds you and everything gets quiet. And you're like, ah. Oh. God about this. Well, see, he couldn't do that if he wasn't this word. Can I introduce you to my God? He's the Lord. And he's the Lord God. And he's tender. Oh, he can be rough and tough. There's no doubt about it. And that's the opposite. And that becomes the problem. Think about it, beloved. If my lifestyle dictates a different God, because the different God will be a God that is rough and gruff and irritated. And when I come to him, he's like, wow, oh, you again? You said you'd never do this. Is that the God you think you know? Well, that's not the God of Scripture. Not only is he merciful, but he's gracious. And understand, the idea of gracious is quite simple. It's the idea that he gives what we don't deserve. And here's the problem. Every other relationship we have will be somewhat performance-based. Think about it. And if it's performance-based, that means that the better you do, the more you get. And then you've got a God who wants to give to you simply because he loves you. And I've learned this. There is a behavioral aspect to it. But I can tell you from experience, there have been several times when I have, I've had gifts in my room to give to my children. But they've misbehaved and thus have not received those gifts at that time. But I don't take the gifts back. I just wait. I figure sooner or later they have to behave, right? And when they do, then it would be nice to give them the thing that I've been waiting for. But understand, it wasn't that their behavior brought me to go get something. It was already there. It was given because of kindness. It wasn't given because they earned it. Nothing you have that's good has been given because you earned it. Nothing that I have that's good has been given because I earned it. My wife, my children, this church this ministry, unfathomable how good God is. But none of it can be earned. Not a single bit of it. 
because he just loves to give. So the opposite then is that God keeps score. The harder I work, the more he'll give me. If I pray more, light more candles, give more to the church, if I spend more time with the poor, if, and, you know, and you do it. And it, here's the crazy part. If you live that kind of lifestyle, and what happens is you do some stuff and something bad happens, then you get angry at God because you think he owes you. And you're like, come on! I actually had a good quiet time this morning. Why in the world should something bad happen today? This was a good day. And you know, if you think, if you start thinking through, you're thinking, oh, he's probably paying me back from yesterday because yesterday wasn't so good. (laughs) Gracious and then long-suffering. Two words for long-suffering literally means he has a long nose. Isn't that great? Or long nostrils. Yeah, how about that? And the idea apparently is if you have a short nose, you have a quick temper. But we get the idea. (laughs) Nostrils, by the way, were associated with anger. And the idea is where God says that he'll flare his nostrils or fire comes from his nostrils. The best example you can think of is a bull where you kind of get, if you see the bull, you kind of know things aren't so good. What's interesting is there's one person in Scripture that actually knew these three qualities about God and was upset about it. Could you believe that? Listen to this text. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord! Was it not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Do you hear that? That's why we get so troubled at Jonah, because Jonah knew these qualities about God, and he knew that this God would be merciful, tender to the untender. Gracious to the undeserving, but you can't be gracious to the deserving or it wouldn't be grace. Long-suffering to the trying. And who more so than Nineveh? Those fish slappers. Those mean, nasty people who used to skin people alive and drag them from meat hooks. Clearly those people deserve hell. And that's why when God said, Jonah, I have a message for you to see some people delivered. The largest revival in all of Scripture, bigger than the book of Acts. The largest revival in all of Scripture. More people repent at one time under a guy who's upset about it than anyone else in Scripture. And the guy's upset about it. He's like, oh, come on. I knew that. That's why I didn't go. Because I knew you would save him. Could you imagine if we thought that? Because I think other people think that of us. And that's why we don't share. But he knew that God was merciful. He knew that he was gracious. And he knew that he had a long nose. Which, by the way, apparently is a good thing. Thank you very much. Next three, or next two, abounding in goodness and truth. And by the way, God cannot display his long-suffering unless we try it. Now, I'm not telling you to do that. That's not a command, go out and try God's patience. I'm just here to let you know, you will whether you know it or not. All that means is that you are actually not going with the program as quickly as you think you should. The good news is you can't frustrate a God who knows everything. You frustrate someone who's expecting something and didn't get it. That frustrates you. You thought that the rail replacement bus would take you all the way down. Coincidentally, it only took you two stops and dropped you off in the middle of nowhere. I'm not bitter. I'm just saying coincidentally or whatever, hypothetically. That's frustrating. And you turn to your daughter and say, it's all right, it's an adventure. While inside you're going, oh, come on. No, no, follow me in this. God doesn't do that because you're not surprising him. You're like, God, I just promised I'd never. And if God were frustrated, he wouldn't be long-suffering. Listen to this statement by Paul. Another life verse. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Arche, like archangel. Primary. I'm the president of sinners. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, chief of sinners... Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul said is, Jesus saved me so you could not say he wouldn't save you. You can say, well, God wouldn't save me. He's like, I used to kill Christians. What you got? We're like, ah, I got nothing. 
And he didn't just displays, he didn't just displays unlimited grace. He displayed his unlimited patience. Do you know what that means? That means that Paul didn't get with the program right away. Every time the Lord was like, remember when he said it's kind of hard to kick against the goads? Every time the Lord kind of brought him, and he's like, no! Brought him again, no! Brought him again, no! How, what about us? What if we displayed unlimited patience to the person that isn't getting with the program? And we think, what is wrong with you? You even know the truth. Shouldn't you be doing it by now? And you're like, what is wrong? And God's like, look it, I have unlimited patience. I'm long-suffering and I live in you. You need to help display that to others. And you're like, I don't like to display that to others. And God goes, of course. That's why that old man has to die. Because that old man living is not going to be happy. And that old man is not long-suffering. Then we get to these. Abounding. Abounding means more than you can contain. Abounding in goodness and truth. Now, I start to think, well, wait a minute. This God that the heaven of heavens can't contain is, has more than he can contain? How does that work? Or is it the other? And that is that he has more than we can contain of goodness and truth. Now, interesting, because the word here for goodness is the word chesed, the word we normally use for mercy. And the word in the simplest sense, and I just kind of love the way this plays out, is everything that is beneficial and kind is the idea. Kindness is the most common, loving kindness is often the word that's used there. And he has more loving kindness than you'll ever need. And truth, interesting, the word there, for what it's worth, the word amat, means stability, trustworthiness. He'll be, he'll be more stable than you'll ever need him to be. He has more stability. Listen, he has more stability than you can contain. Any of you other than me need a little bit more stability? I'm not talking about in the world around me. I'd love that. But I mean in me. That every response I give would be a godly one. He's got more for me than I can contain. He's got more kindness for me. And if it's for me than I can contain, then you can bet he's going to want to be to, to, to display that kindness through me and to display that stability through me and you as well. Keeping mercy for thousands. Maintaining the word there. Which means then, that you'll never have to worry about how much that he, you know. Have you ever done this with mercy? You've gone, wait a minute, I know what it says. His mercy is new every morning. I think I've used up today's. I might as well just go to sleep. If I can get up tomorrow and start using the new batch of mercy. But the mercy he has, and the idea of this is that he has enough mercy for a thousand people or thousands just for you. That's how much he has. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here's a very easy word, especially if you're from America, those of you who have come today that are. The word for forgive in Hebrew is the word nasa. And it literally means to lift off. Isn't that perfect? Nasa, lift off, and that's the word for forgive. The idea of forgiving is not to kind of brush away, to kind of put a, to put a cover over it. It literally is to pull away and remove permanently cast as far as east is from west. And that's what he does with our iniquity, the word azavon, that's all evil, our transgression, and the idea of that, Pasha is the idea of something where you're stepping where you shouldn't, in sin, anything that would put you out of position, an offense. The opposite of this, of course, is a God who keeps score. That you say, God, I said I'd never do it again. And he's like, you said you'd never do it again. Do you know there's one area according to scripture you know more than God? at his choice, and that's your sin. Because it tells us that the moment we f- confess our sin, he not only forgives it, but chooses to remember it no more. So you're trying to remind God of something he chose to forget, which was your sin. Do you really think that's a wise idea? Try that in a relationship, see how good that works. When you're like, you know what, I know that I said, you know, I, I know that I did this back a couple of years ago. Like, oh, you did. You are a jerk. You know, I mean, I've watched, I've done marriage counseling where it's like, you should just stop talking right now. You should stop. In Scripture, it says in Second Corinthians, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. You are perpetually being made a new creation. Praise God for that. And if forgive literally is to remove and choose to remember no more, you never have to worry about forgiving 70 times 7 because every time is the first. 
So, He forgives all of our revolt, all of our evil, all of our sin or offenses. And then we read, by no means clearing. And notice how the guilty is in italics. Do you see that? What that means is it's added to the text to give clarity. In the simplest sense, what God says is is that this will still have to be punished. And by the way, can I just say, here's one of those beautiful things. We're almost done. Please hear me. This is one of the most beautiful things about why our Christianity is the only religion on earth. That's right. Isn't that radical to say? Please hear me. Because it's the only religion where all of the sin and the wrong gets punished and yet every human being can receive mercy. Because everywhere else, if you were just to say, well, you did all these, th- these things wrong, but forget it, we could, you've done nice things, you still never punish the wrong. But if you punish the wrong, then how do you actually let the sinner go free? God in his brilliance, because he's really God and he's really smart and he's the real one, was, of course had that whole thing figured out. And that's simple. I will punish that on the only person that could actually receive it other than the person who committed it. And that would be someone who had no sin. And that's what Second Corinthians says when it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Now please hear me in this. If every religious leader that ever stood, that ever claimed to be anything, stood in a line... And you asked, okay, how many of you want to be my Savior? How many would step forward? One. If you would ask, how many of you want to be my Lord? How many do you think would step forward? Many. How many of you are perfect? How many could step forward? One. Do you know that the Talmud speaks about Jesus being sinless? Do you know that the, the Quran speaks about Jesus being sinless? Do you know that? The only one that is sinless is God in the flesh who chose to take your sin. Even these other guys who were deluded or whatever the case is or even meant well did not choose to take your sin nor could because they had their own sin to pay for. But my God in his brilliance took both. Took the mercy seat and offered punishment for all of the sin and therefore forgives iniquity and sin, all our evil, all our revolting and yet still by no means just clears it away and must be punished and he punishes it as well. Then we get to this last thing and you start to think, this is a little bit odd. Look at it with me. It's just by no means clearing the guilty. And it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children up to the third and fourth generation. Now stop. The writer of this book, God, assumes you've read the first 20, I'm sorry, the first 33 chapters of this book and, of course, the last 50 from Genesis. Before It isn't like you close your eyes, stuck your finger in and started to read this. If you had read up to this point, you read in the book of Exodus chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 5, when God laid out that law the first time, the Ten Commandments, in it he says this, visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. There's a thing within the church that's called a generational curse. Perhaps you've heard of it. The danger is it doesn't fit within Exodus 20, verse 5. Hey, a generational curse works fine as long as you don't love God. If you hate God, that makes sense to me. And the idea of it's simple. You're an alcoholic. It's fairly likely that your children are going to learn how to be alcoholics. If you're sexually perverse, fairly likely your children will learn how to become sexually perverse. I mean, those kind of things happen. I don't like them. We live in a fallen world. And anyone who hates God should expect it. Now, the opposite of that is simple. My sin is an island. Nobody's ever affected by it. I can do it alone privately and no one will know. We should learn better. There is no sin you can do that doesn't affect other people. Because if nothing else, it just makes you less open to God leading. Because you are already hardening your heart by doing it in the first place. Please hear me. The moment you turn to Christ, you are a new creation and you have a whole new spiritual DNA. Don't tell me that my kids are going to be visited for the sin that I had before I came to Christ. Praise God they weren't. If I believed that, I would never have had children. There's no generational curse for me. You know what there is with me? There's a generational blessing for me. That's what there is. 
I know that God has already planned. Think about what happened when he blessed Abraham. And then he says, you know what, for Isaac, for your dad's sake, I'm going to bless you. And then Jacob, and think about the yes Jacob was. And he's like, yeah, but for grandpa's sake, I'm going to bless you. And then Israel becomes what Israel is. And he goes, yeah, but for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to bless you. And then David, and he goes, but for the sake of your forefathers, I'm going to bless you. And then after David, he has all of these horrible children. And he goes, but for the sake of your father, David, I'm going to bless you. And I'm just standing the idea of that. It is like, I know that the more that I surrender myself to the living God, remember, the difference between here and here is fruitfulness. And if the root is good, the fruit is good. Does that make sense? And the, the beautiful thing is, is that God didn't just take me and kind of polish me up a little bit and make me like a bonsai. He yanked me out and became a whole new thing here. And this whole new thing is planted in Christ. I expect great fruit because He is the root. I expect my children to be, to be blessed. I expect my wife to be blessed. And it isn't because she married me. It's because who I married. And that's the living God. Beloved, please hear me. When, by the time we're done here, and we're near there now, Moses' response should be our response. Now, I don't know what kind of God you thought you came into here. Maybe when you thought, if I show up at church today, God will give me a nicer day. Maybe you thought if I actually gave more in the tithe box, it'll be God will give me that car I've been praying for or the job that I've been looking for or that house I've been applying for. But if you really think you're trying to deal with God, you've lost the God of grace. I don't do anything to get anything out of God. He's done enough. If he stopped doing everything for me for the rest of eternity, he's already done more than I can repay. But I do things out of the fact that he loves me and everything is out of that love that he's done for me, that love that he's given me are the grace he showered me with. So I look and I think, now wait a minute, do I know that God? That is the Lord and the Lord God. Because all those other qualities just show me why it's so wonderful that he's my Lord, that he of all people. And so with that in mind then, Moses responds. So Moses then made haste and he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshipped. This is the response that Moses did. It's when Moses saw this God. Now, well, you know what's interesting? is God didn't have to flex. He didn't have to shake the mountain. He didn't have to send fire down. He didn't have to glow and ignite and blow up everything in front of him. He didn't have to murder all of his enemies in front of him in a moment like this, or kill, just say murder. He didn't have to do any of that. God didn't have to flex and watch giant muscles pop out of his arms. All you had to do was tell him who he was and it brought him to worship. And just knowing that God was enough to say, you know what? You're awesome. I already know you're infinite. But to know this is who you are and not just what you are. And in that moment of worship, he says this. In the moment of worship, God says, hey, can I tell you this is worship? He said, if I found grace in your sight, if you really are about giving me what I don't deserve, then can I just ask this? Please go with us. I mean, I know we're stiff-necked, but would you please forgive our iniquity and sin as you promised and make us the one thing you really want? Could you please? And you know how it ends? God says, boy, that's what I want. As we go to prayer, let me ask you again. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ today? Have you accepted his payment on the cross for your sins and his resurrection to be Lord of your life? Are you still banking on the fact that it's just enough to say, I went to church? If you have said yes to Jesus Christ, will you pray with me? God, take me from just the land of bondage. Deliverance isn't removal. And take me to the place, Lord, where you make me fruitful. But in that, the old man must die, and I'm good with that. You pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for being a God who loves us so beautifully and desperately. I thank you, Lord, for being a God who has revealed your personality, not angry and bitter and irrational and unpredictable and scorekeeping but tender and kind and forgiving. But with all of those things, Lord, you still demand to be Lord. 
Because we could just, if all you gave us was your personality but not your position, we'd say, well, then you should serve me because, look, you're going to forgive me anyways and you're going to be kind and nice and tender. But you are Lord, so you deserve our surrender. We can't tell you how to reinvent us, but we can surrender and say, Lord, we put our lives in your hands knowing it's in the best hands they could be in. And so, Lord, I pray right now, even as Moses came with a clean slate and said, all right, Lord, now write upon this as you wish. We come with our hearts as a clean slate and we confess, Jesus, you dying on the cross, that all of our guilt could be punished so that the, the sin would not be cleaned, but that the sin would be removed so that the sinner could be cleaned and not the sin. Sin will be filthy. But you sent Jesus to die that all the sin could be punished all the guilt could be punished. All the shame could be punished. Thank you. And so for that I say, yes, Jesus, thank you for being my ransom and my savior. But Jesus, you didn't just die. You rose again. And in raising again, you demand to be my Lord. And I don't want to be one of those to whom you will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I never knew you. I know you know me. And I know you. And I call you Lord and Lord God. And I just say, be the Lord of my life. Have total say and take me Lord from a place that's that's from bondage Lord that's been Lord but better yet to a place of great fruitfulness now don't let me stay and walk in this life Lord somehow just wandering in between but Lord take me to that place where you've ordained a place of great fruitfulness and I commit myself to you Lord and I just say Jesus I'm yours father I surrender myself to you and I say have me I belong to you and if you agree I ask you to say amen